0: hello and welcome to your guide to ai a podcast focused on ai and in industry research startups and geopolitics i'm nathan Benesh, general partner of air Street capital in this episode we talk to Cade metz technology correspondent at the new york times and author of genius makers the mavericks who brought ai to google facebook and the world our conversation threads the birth of deep learning academia's role in driving ai into industry large AI labs such as DeepMind and OpenAI, China and geopolitics, Europe's role in the world stage, and AI and science. I hope you enjoy the conversation.
1: Today, we're really excited to have Cade Metz join us here. He's a technology correspondent at the New York Times. and has been spending quite a number of years now with his ear to the ground and a lot of back rooms that we probably don't get access to, really understanding what's happening in machine learning, the key players in the field and and what they're doing and their personalities and what makes them tick and really kind of charting an amazing kind of end to end 60 year history of of what happened in deep learning and and where things might be going. So to kick things off, I thought we would dive into understanding your motivations and what you were trying to kind of deliver to readers by writing this book and maybe what is the thing or what is the most important thing that you hope people will take away from it when they do read it?
2: Well, you know the i think the irony here is that it's a book about artificial intelligence but it's such a human story and that's what i wanted to do like i wanted to do a human story on multiple levels i wanted to show how this technology is really changing our lives and help people really understand you know what is working and what is not and where it's going but the best way to tell any story is is through people and i became fascinated as i reported on this stuff over the years by the people who were building it and people who had spent decades struggling to build the technologies we're gonna talk about here. And they're such fascinating people in each in their own way. And the reason I'm glad to do this talk is that, you know, two of the central characters are British. And that's you know, the, the role of the UK in this is really important and really interesting. And in fact, you know, I have an audio version of the book, which is also out today, and it's narrated by a British actor because of that, right? There's a real British flavor to this. And I want that to come through. Part of it is, you know, the the sense of humor of the central character, Jeffrey Hinton, who was born in London. It, it is a tremendous sense of humor that he brings to the book. And it's a very British sense of humor. And I'm happy to get that into my piece.
1: Yeah, totally. They're replying to emails as uh, I prefer Jeffrey, sign Jeff. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
2: Let's talk that guy That's up. You? Yeah.
1: So, maybe on the topic of Hinton, you, you kind of start the story off with a pretty big bang that I think not many people are sort of aware of. And this is uh, his company, DNN Research. Do you want to maybe tell people very briefly what the opening is and, and this acquisition story? And, and what I was interested in is you sort of hint as you go through it that the world could look very different if the outcome. Of the buyer would have been quite different given who was around the table it's
2: really true you know sometimes when you're writing a story at the new york times or you know if you're writing a book certainly it's hard to it's hard to decide where to begin right but with this book it was the opposite like it had to begin with this incredible story as i was reporting the story i couldn't believe what i was hearing like it's You know, I spent years reporting this and making sure every fact was right. And yet a part of me, you know, still wonders if I should believe it. It's like too perfect. But it's amazing. It's this moment where this one idea, the idea of of a neural network, which dates back to the 50s, started to work, right? And the industry, the tech industry, realized it was starting to work. And what's fascinating is how quickly the industry jumped on it. And it's equally fascinating how Jeff took advantage of that, right? So he and his two students at the University of Toronto, they published this paper that shows that a neural network can recognize objects and images with an accuracy that no other technology had ever achieved. And that's important for the future, right? For facial recognition, for driverless cars, for all sorts of other robotics, and all sorts of other technologies, right? It worked in other areas, and, and he knew it would continue to work in other areas and he decides to auction his services off to the highest bidder. You know, he, he I mean, literally had some of the biggest companies involved in this bidding for his services. And one of the fascinating things, and this is what you were alluding to, is that one of those companies was a Chinese company, Baidu. And sometimes in this field, people think about China as, you know, a big player, but that they, they trailed in this respect, right? And They were kind of late to the game. But they were there from the beginning. And that is what is so fascinating. And a British company, by the way, was <clears> there in the beginning. And that was another amazing moment for me is when Demis Hassabis, the founder of DeepMind in London, told me, I was at their, at their offices in London. He says, oh, by the way, we were one of the bidders. Um, you know, at that point, even the, yeah, the other that. people in the auction didn't know who that fourth bidder was. And then and then he tells me and, and that's fascinating too that, that demis and deep Mind saw what was happening as well and were mm-hmm. and were acquiring all the talent in this area and that they wanted more. And that's why they started bidding for for Jeff mm-hmm. as well.
1: Interesting. Yeah, and I think you know, having listened and tried to study the story of Deep Mind a lot, like one of the things that Demis refers to as a competitive advantage is the cross-disciplinary nature of their approach to to AI. And There was this awesome uh, quote that I wasn't aware of that you wrote about, which is from Alan Eustace. I think at the time was the SVP at Google and also casually the world record holder for for the highest altitude freefall jump. I didn't know either. And and he said, quote, most people look at uh, particular problems from a particular point of view and have a particular perspective and a particular history. They don't look at the intersections of expertise that will change the picture. I thought that was like, that was really telling in the context of DeepMind. And I was curious if you had a view, having studied all these different organizations, you know, what kinds of new intersections are required as we look forward perhaps to the next iteration of deep learning or or what might come
2: afterwards? Yes. Yeah, see, I think this is, this is a really key point and you see this not only in the way these companies react to this, right. And, and Google in particular, and, and Eustace is one of the people inside Google thinks this way that you have to kind of look outside your point of view and be willing to take in these other points of view. And the whole story is like that. Like Jeff Hinton embraced that idea of a neural network in the early seventies when no one believed in it. Like even people in the AI field didn't believe in it, right? He's Mm -hmm. looking outside the the common point of view and he's willing to say that I, I, I can see where this is going even when everyone else is saying it's not. And that's a common theme, and you're right. It's so important to any business, and and it's and it's important to to Google, certainly. But also, what's fascinating is that even though Alan Eustace you know, voices that he explains that idea, even inside Google, people are struggling to embrace that. Right, yeah. and people see it, this technology working, and they see that the way to get it to work is these new types of computer chips. Right, that the neural network starts to work because of these processors that were actually built for games. And, and, you know, even though Jeff Hinton on the one hand is showing that this is the way forward, there are people at Google who are saying, well, we're gonna put a bunch of gaming chips in our data center, we're not gonna do that, right? So it's hard even for these companies that are geared towards that idea for them to move in those directions. Just
3: jumping on a quick point. So you you were bringing up Canada, University of Toronto, CIFAR, University of Montreal by extension. I think that's where we used to see some of the gray matter and efforts being pushed in, in the field. And now there's definitely a, a GAFA brain drain happening, even, you know, thinking back to Carnegie Mellon and Uber uh, a few years ago. How, how do you see the, the core of research progressing in the next few years? Do you think there's a hope for academia to, to retake the torch? Or, or do you think the future of cutting edge machine learning is going to be staying with GAFA's for the next few years?
2: I think it's definitely gonna be staying in industry for the next few years. And that's a real, a real concern for a lot of people, right? It's just it's just economics, right? You see in the opening of the book, you know, Jeff sells his services and the services to students for millions of dollars, right? And that set the price for the talent. And you see over the years, this talent being able to command lots of money for one thing. But the other thing is these companies are where. The other two things that you need reside, right? You need data, lots and lots of data, and you need lots and lots of computing power, right? And that's, that's where all those forces are, right? There's where the money is, the data, and the computing power, you know? So naturally, that's, that's gonna, there's gonna be an imbalance there for the foreseeable yeah. future. And the academic question, and it's not just academia, it's government labs, right? That's the other big concern is that the talent is not in the government labs either it's all in these very large companies. Um, A lot of people are working to change that. And these do things even out over time, but it's really extreme at this this particular moment.
1: One thing maybe to build on this that's uh, quite astounding is that today we think computing uh, is taken for granted is like obvious that is required for progress in machine learning. And then the second point is that, you know, it's academia that told industry that this is the way that technology ecosystem is going to go. It wasn't the other way around. And there was an amazing segment that, that you had when you talked about the Google versus Microsoft bake-off, as it were, where you know Hinton kind of goes for the first summer to Microsoft uh, to work on speech and, and show that deep learning can work not just for images, but also for speech. And so he does a stint at Microsoft Research with this guy Li Deng, who's now quite senior in the organization who worked on speech. And it goes, quote, Hinton and his students explained that the project wouldn't succeed without a very different breed of hardware, including a $100,000 GPU card. And at first, Deng balked at the price. His boss, Alex Acero, who would one day oversee Siri at Apple, told him this was an unnecessary expense. The GPUs were for gamers, as you said, not AI research. And he said, quote, don't waste your money telling Deng to skip the expensive NVIDIA gear and buy generic cards from a local Fry's electronics store. <laughs> <laughs> it was just amazing.
2: It does encapsulate that attitude. And... You know, it shows you these forces that, that all these people are working against. But you know, I think you know, you've know you made like another key point is that it's the academics that realize where this is going and they end up in influencing these companies in enormous ways. And one way we haven't talked about is that they sort of force these companies to publish all their research. And that's still the way it works is that the new results get openly published. That didn't necessarily happen before. And it's fascinating to me how... All the, the new ideas are suddenly available from day one to everyone on Earth, right? That has big yeah. geopolitical ramifications. You yeah. see
3: it with companies like Apple, right? Who were the last ones to get on the game and as a result, at least they're doing amazing things, but maybe not one of the top companies I would cite in terms of having pushed the envelope over the past few years. But so just as given Nathan and I look at more early stage machine learning stories, is there hope for, for early stage startups to take on the GAFAs or is the natural step just acquisition? How can, how can they rival titans that have the data and the computing power and, and the budget to out hire their staff?
2: Yeah, it, it, it is really hard. I think you're going to see a gap when it comes to certain technologies. Like right now, the, one of the big technologies in the field are these, these really, really big neural networks that learn the nuances of language. They call them universal language models. And the big example now is GPT-3 out of OpenAI, the lab in, in San Francisco. And they're backed by Microsoft to the tune of a billion dollars. And, and that billion dollars goes into that computing power. And those types of models which train on just like enormous swaths of the internet over months inside a data center, that's going to be the domain of the big guys for a while. Now, computing power gets cheaper and these these things sometimes get open sourced and that might trickle down, but there are other areas where startups can can really succeed. You know, I just did a piece about a whole series of startups that are taking these, these ideas and applying them to self-flying drones right and you know i, I looked at induril and skydio in silicon valley there are other companies in southern california even in utah you know which are taking these ideas and applying them to that type of robotics and and they that has all sorts of applications in the military outside the military for reconnaissance as you know as well as on the battlefield and and it's really startups uh, that are doing that so there are areas where smaller companies can compete.
1: And maybe on the subject of, of large kind of AI labs, you mentioned uh, open AI. I think the other thing that I learned through the book, which was interesting were these character developments and character studies that you did with, you know, Lacoon, Hinton, Hassabis, Suskiver, like in one segment we you put it Hinton saying, you know, only Demis could have ran AlphaGo and you did it like Oppenheimer ran the Manhattan project. And if anybody else would have run it, it wouldn't have gone nearly as well and nearly as fast which I think is, is, is extremely telling also in the context of, of startups where the management team is key to execution. But then on the other side, like for another personality, you see uh, you know, Musk and Altman who painted OpenAI as the counterweight to what they call the dangers presented by the big internet companies. What's kind of ironic at the time is like they argue that the threat of malicious AI would be mitigated precisely because their technology would be available to everybody and not biased by a corporate kind of background all those things have, have sort of changed as the, as the kind of ecosystem has changed as well. But I was curious whether, you know, your understanding of these characters and their personalities might kind of give us a sense over like how these labs will evolve. And maybe, you know, will, will, will we still see this kind of bimodal world of OpenAI versus DeepMind? Or will we see additional labs as maybe, you know, politics comes into play and people want to do things differently?
2: It's, it's really interesting. And I love that you focus on on the personalities. I mean, let's start with the personalities, then we'll move into the labs. You know, one of the reasons that Jeff Hinton talks about Demis as, as an Oppenheimer figure, it's for two reasons. Demis is a scientist, right? And what Jeff is saying is that Demis really, really understands the science. At the same time, he has this extreme power to motivate people, right? He has extreme ambition himself. And I've talked to so many of his employees about this over the years that like, he just has this power to motivate people and, and get them to push as hard as he is towards these big goals. So it's sort of the combination of the two, you know, Musk and Altman are, are different figures. They're not the scientists that, that Demis is, but they have similar ambition, right. And, and they do really want to, want to push this stuff forward and they have a real talent for raising money, for instance, and and it's really the money that is needed to push this research in extreme directions for the moment. So that's why I think that you know when it comes to those really really ambitious uh, projects, those are going to be the two labs for the moment, as well as those really big companies.
1: Maybe th- this is another transition, which is China and geopolitics. So we're kind of talking about the Western labs, but kind of ignoring perhaps what's happening in China, which which you do dive into in the book. And one of the segments I thought was also quite telling was the AlphaGo match where Google executives fly over to Asia and Eric Schmidt is on stage at this conference in Wuzhen and he says all major Chinese internet companies would be better off if they used TensorFlow. It almost sounds like, uh, like kind of Western proselytizing, especially given that, you know, you write what he didn't realize was that China's tech giants had been doing this like all along basically. And Andrew Ng was already building Baidu AI for many years. And, you know, in any case, even if it did need Google's help, China wouldn't take it on because the government had blacked out the AlphaGo match in Wuzhen. And later on, you say that, that Schmidt revised the statement saying, quote, I knew when I gave the speech that the Chinese were coming. I just didn't understand at the time how totally effective some of their programs would be. I honestly just didn't understand. I think most Americans wouldn't understand. And I'm not going to misunderstand in the future. And then what's amazing is, you know, a few years later, two weeks ago, basically, like Eric Schmidt is pushing this national security report and huge investment in AI. And so I'm really interested to get your take on, you know, what happened here. Like, did he, you know, what was what was he thinking? And perhaps what is your take on, on his newest you know policy
2: recommendations? Well, again, I love that you bring this up. It was I was there in China when that happened. It was shocking, right? I, I'd actually been in Korea the year before when DeepMind and Google brought this playing machine to Seoul. And it was, it was an unbelievable moment. Like you could feel the whole country, you know, all of Korea sort of swaying to and fro as this match between a machine and a human swayed to and fro. And it was a huge PR opportunity for Google, right? That was the moment when this, this field really showed itself to the general public. Like people can understand a game, right? That, that a machine, for the first time, i beaten one of the best players at this very complex ancient game. And people really understood that. And, you know, it was a great, you know, moment for Google in terms of just promoting itself. And then they wanted to do the same thing in China, right? A year later, they talked about this at the top of the company, right? This is another PR opportunity. We want to get back into China. Which is, you know, in hindsight, right, what an idea that is. Like they're going to get back into China. I mean, good luck. But that's the way they saw it. We're going to go back to China. It's going to be another another big PR opportunity. And there were two amazing moments there, and you alluded to them. One is that I get there, and there are plans to broadcast this new match between AlphaGo, the machine built by DeepMind, and the best Go player in the world at the time, the nineteen-year-old. Kujie, who's who's Chinese himself. It's going to be broadcast across China. 60 million Chinese had watched the match in Korea, and they're going to broadcast it on state TV, as well as across the internet. And right before the match happens, an order came down from the government and shut down the TV, the TV plans. And there was an order to Chinese journalists, and I talked to journalists who were there, that said, if you write about this, you cannot use the word Google, right? So they're like... Wow. The curtain came down on this, and and I'm inside this arena with just a few other journalists and dignitaries, and it was, it was this weird feeling that you're the only ones in the country seeing this, and for everyone else, it's not happening, right? Crazy. And then Eric Schmidt gets up on stage, and I, I couldn't believe what he was saying, you know, having known the history, and, you know, and at that point, I didn't know, you know, Chinese Politics as well as I do now. And I certainly still don't know it as well as some of my colleagues who live over there and cover this on a daily basis. But it was shocking that he was saying this. It was almost like he was talking down to the country, right? Oh, what you guys need to do is you just need to embrace what what Google's doing. Well, it hasn't exactly worked out that way, right? And you're right. He's on this commission that's just delivered a a, a new report to Congress and the president talking about how the, the US needs to think differently about this and Mm. and better blend industry and government and they even want to create like a national school for ai researchers essentially like a west point for Mm. digital services they call it Mm. so he really sees the gap there between the way the chinese are doing things and maybe the way the u.s is
1: where do you see europe's role do you think that europe has a shot and in particular the uk where do we fit into this ecosystem and How can we generate more genius makers? What do we need to do?
2: Well, it's really interesting. There's a story I wrote about this a couple years ago in the Times. I visited when I was in Deep Mind, that time I talked to Demis. I also spent a lot of time in Cambridge. And it was fascinating to me. I I hadn't been in Cambridge for a while. And I got off the train and I walked towards the university. And you, you know, like you walk two blocks and there's this giant Microsoft research lab. And then you walk a couple more and then there's the Apple lab. And, you know, they'd acquired this company that was there. And, you know, there's all these, you know, foreign tech giants. You There was this big building that was being built. Turns out it was a Samsung lab. So you don't, you don't have that UK tech giant. Like a lot of people say, you know, DeepMind could have been that, but you do have a lot of talent in the area, right? And you do you do have people of major influence. You just don't have that tech giant yet. And that, you know, that may or may not happen. But the talent there is Mm -hmm. enormous, not just in Cambridge, but you go to London and that's another key area. And Mm -hmm. that, you know, that it's usually around the universities, right? And That's a big part of this this book is how that talent sort of bubbles up in the UK as well as other parts of the world.
3: And one point, which, which obviously Nathan's written quite a bit about, but it's, it's just commercializing that talent. So I think, the same in, in Paris or in, in Germany, we'll find this ETH in Zurich really great at churning out gray matter. Some of it will go and build interesting applications, but then those that actually manage to build massive companies, it's quite rare. Any thoughts as to why Europe might struggle in that field compared to the States?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's basically about the fact that all those other giants are already there, right? And they control the infrastructure, right? It, so it, it worked out that you had, you know, basically these five American companies that grew up and controlled the infrastructure. That's a key part of this technology, as we talked about, is the, the data centers and the data needed to build this stuff. So they're kind of in place. You're not going to compete with that, right? It's impossible. And your deep mind sort of shows this, that they had all the talent, they knew where things were going, they had everything in place, but then these companies start throwing all this money at it and they knew they couldn't compete with that, right? They almost, mm-hmm. they did, they said this to me, both two of the founders, that they they sort of had to sell at that moment because otherwise their, tech, their, their talent would just be poached by these very large mm-hmm. companies, right? So we're just at this moment where, You know, until there's a new infrastructure, right? And until the dynamic really changes, you you can't compete with Google and Microsoft and Facebook.
1: I mean, maybe one area of competition that we could talk about or evolving area of competition is in the sciences. And you have a little segment of this in in the book as well, where you talk about an episode with George Dahl, who's, you know, well-acclaimed at that time, PhD student of Hinton, who casually in his spare time entered a Kaggle competition, which was hosted by Merck and the big pharmaceutical company. And the task was to explore drug discovery, uh, particular technique called quantitative structure activity relationship. I think basically how drugs kind of bind to proteins or targets. And then the, the quote is, George wiped out the entire field without even knowing its name. Like I think it took him a weekend or something like that to hack together a neural network and then obliterate all the competition. And he didn't really even understand the problem he was solving. And it shows you kind of like the power and expressivity of deep learning and how it can be applied to lots of things. And uh, I mean, I've certainly been paying a lot of attention to AI and biology, but there's so many applications in the sciences that clearly, you know, Demis and DeepMind care about. So I'd be curious to, to kind of get your take on where you think those kinds of opportunities might be and, and to what degree science in general is sort of like the next frontier for, for machine learning and in industry.
2: Yeah, I love that moment with George for two reasons. I mean, one, is, it, it does show the power of the individual, right? And we've talked about startups and small teams, and sometimes it's just individual people, they, they can find these places um, where if the technology is applied in the right way and the new technology is applied in the right way, they can beat all these established players, right? You know, George is competing with, you know, it's, it's like dozens and dozens of companies and, and labs across the world. And he's just like half-heartedly doing this. He's like on a train going to Portland, right? And, you know, and he's like seventh in the rankings and Hinton says, well, you better win now. And he does. And, you know, what the echo of this recently is at DeepMind, right? They had this result in the fall called Alpha Fold, right? Where yeah. they joined this competition. It's called the Protein Folding Competition. And this is a biological sciences problem that, that scientists have struggled to crack for decades. And, you know, usually it's it's biological sciences labs and 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 companies in that area. And then this, you know, this machine learning company comes out of nowhere and they, you know, essentially solve the problem, not necessarily with processing power in this case, like that's part of it, but it's, it was really about their approach and, and the way that Demis pushed, you know, his employees to solve this particular problem. And it's a problem with huge implications. Like a lot of people think that this, this type of work can help us when the next pandemic comes, when it comes to, creating medicines for a vaccine or repurposing the medicines we already have for people who, who have the condition, right? It's really it's, it's a really key result. It might be the most important result of the past decade.
3: And you've touched on a point where on, on one side of the spectrum, you're bringing up really exciting uses for this technology, such as being able to find vaccines a bit faster. And then you bring out the battlefield applications. What are maybe some of the new fields that really excite you? Uh, and what are some of the ones you're you're a bit cautious, if not worried about?
2: What I think is interesting is how very often those two things are one and the same, right? Like you know, we talk about GPT uh, three, that, that those giant language models that learn from the internet, that has some really amazing applications potentially. Like you know, for you know, more than half a century, computer scientists have have dreamed of building a a machine that can pass the Turing test, right? That can carry on a conversation. And that's what those technologies are helping us do among other things, is develop a machine that can do a turn-by-turn conversation, but they can also, these systems generate tweets and blog posts and news articles. And that that can be used in so many ways from the Google search engine to so many other services you're gonna use on a daily basis. But it's also a way of generating disinformation right? We have all these systems now that can generate disinformation on their own. And they're not perfect yet. But when they get to be perfect, I think we're going to have to think about the world differently, right? Once a machine can generate something, whether it's text or an image that looks like the real thing, and we can't tell the difference, once it can do that, you know, 10 times out of 10, then we're in trouble, I think, Right, And we're not there yet, but that's a scary thought.
1: I mean, given that you write professionally um, for a living, what is the chasm between where the tech is now and where you need it to be for you to have this in a writing editor? So you can give it a few prompts and it can learn, you know, Cade's style, and then generate content that at least can be pretty good so you don't have to do everything. Perhaps even read the text for you in your your audio (laughs)
2: books. Right, right. (laughs) See, this is a, one thing I, you know, I, I really, you know, struggle to explain to people. Like, for those who haven't used GPT three, I think this is what they need to understand. Is and I've used it. What when I was writing a story about it, my editor like he wanted a speech in the voice of Donald Trump, right? And so you can you can get GPT to do this, in, in ways that are just jaw dropping you sort of spin the wheel and you get this speech that could have come out of Donald Trump's mouth and it's like perfectly punctuated and it's like it's strange in the way his speech might be strange and funny in the way it might be funny and and it's it's really shocking but if you if you spin the wheel 10 times it doesn't happen every time and you know you might get one that is absolutely perfect but then the next one it's awful and the third one you've got to tweak it to get it right and so we're not quite there yet and it's we're not sure that that technology as it stands today will get there right it's all about how much data you have you know it learns from so much text and as you throw more at it it gets better and better and better but it's hard to tell if we're going to get to the point where it can it can weed out those problems
1: you know maybe some of us at some point in our lives are like thinking about writing a book or or writing something maybe not as expensive as this are there i guess your first time book author right is there any kind of top tips that you learned or things that would make the process more more efficient or what makes an
3: amazing story and for the rest of us i think we'll limit it to how to improve our medium posts and we'll, we'll take
2: it. <laughs> <laughs> right. well, you know what i really believe is you know it is about any good story is about people. And, and also, you know, I write a lot of about some, some very complicated technologies. And ultimately the trick is, is showing that through people. And it's sometimes it's the people who build it. And sometimes it's, it's the effect that that has on people. Like the it's about the people who are using it. And if you can find those moments where the technology intersects with those people and and they 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 use it in ways that affects them you know that's the way you get people to understand technology and that's what i tried to do in this book right it's about you know, on the one hand about Hinton and 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 Demis and so many other fascinating people and what they're going through as they're trying to build it but then it, in the second half of the book it's about how this technology is affecting the world right and us as individuals and you know the bias that gets baked into these systems and how that affects people and and the disinformation piece and the big questions over autonomous weapons right these are all questions that affect us all and we you know when writing about technology but also when you're writing about anything else like think about the people that's what makes really good stories
0: thanks for listening to our conversation with kate metz author of genius makers if you like this episode, please subscribe and share it with a friend. I'm your host, Nathan Binesh, General Partner of Airstream Capital. See you soon.